Good morning, beloved. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brother Michael. Let's all pray together. God, these are sobering words, and we need your Holy Spirit to understand them and to let them uh, be preached to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would uh, release whatever resistance we might have. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. But most of all, we pray that we would see the holiness and the love of Jesus in the midst of it all. Uh, Jesus, this time chiefly is for you, that we would see your greatness and give you praise. Uh, but we're also praying that you would fill our hearts, teach us something, give us grace to respond obediently, faithfully, and uh, change us. Change us, please. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing in our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're going just line by line or phrase by phrase and trying to unpack the meaning of this great explication of the Christian faith, this summary of Christian beliefs. And today we're looking at this line from there. He, that's Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, last week after uh, preaching, uh, some people were snickering and uh, sort of ribbing me for how many times in a row it seemed I used an illustration from the coronation of King Charles again and again, uh, it, it seemed. Uh, today, there is no King Charles in this sermon. Uh, 
but there is a, a judge. Uh, perhaps you know the show called Caught in Providence. Paula and I, back when we lived in Providence before moving here to D.C., we used to watch this on local TV. It's since blown up this show and become a syndicated program that's being enjoyed online, on TV, really not only here across the country, but around the world. It centers on one man, a judge, municipal court judge Frank Caprio in Providence, Rhode Island, and it's basically a live feed into his courtroom where he hears cases mostly involving traffic and parking violations. I, I wonder if any of you have seen this or heard about it. It's actually gotten quite famous partly because of his humor, partly and mostly because of the surprising compassion that he shows in a world that apparently is starved for compassion. Again and again, episode after episode, he shows a willingness to forgive uh, sort of underdogs. Uh, as long as they're honest about their mistakes, uh, he shows them mercy. So there's a single mom who is struggling to pay off her parking fines. Well, he reduces her fine. Or there's a recent immigrant who makes an illegal right turn while rushing to English class, well, case dismissed. Uh, again and again and again, uh, Judge Caprio shows mercy, shows compassion. 20 million social media followers, more than 6 billion video viewings around the world. Recently, when he was interviewed, Judge Caprio said this. He said, I wear a heart under my robe. <laughs> I think he put that well. One thing I've committed myself to is to treat people with respect, compassion, and understanding. And I try to place myself in the shoes of the people before me. I try to place myself in the shoes of the people before me. The popularity of the show, I think it points to our collective longing, even aching, for mercy, for compassion, for understanding. Don't you know what I'm going through, Judge? Can you please cut me a break? The show also raises questions, I think, in our minds. What, what is it that makes for a good judge? Compassion and mercy, of course, but in other cases, as we well know, leniency actually creates an outcry, even protests. When the crowd, when the viewing public believes that someone should be condemned, in fact, a verdict of guilty should be brought down and is not. In those cases, the judge himself, herself, is placed in the dock. It causes us to wonder, it makes you wonder, if the whole world would one day stand before a judge, what kind of judge would we hope that judge would be? In fact, if the whole world will stand before Jesus one day, what kind of judge do we hope he will be? You see, the Apostles' Creed and the Bible reminds us that we will, in fact, stand before a judge. All of us. After reminding us that Jesus today is alive and ascended in heaven, the Apostles' Creed declares, as we declared earlier, from there, from heaven, he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
on a future undisclosed date, Jesus will return. Christians call that the second coming. And when he returns, we will stand before him in judgment, something that's often referred to as the last judgment, the decisive judgment. Most of us do day-to-day, maybe, battle with the fear of judgment. But more typically, I think it's the judgment of our peers, what they think of us, whether they approve of us, a boss, a friend, a family member. Or maybe it's the judgment of ourselves that haunt us the most, the voices in our head, our self-condemning spirit. And then we tell ourselves, in order to not wither under that judgment, we tell ourselves, well, they don't know who I am, the real me. I'm not that. This is really me. But what will we do when we stand before the one who knows who we really are, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows our true record of righteousness and love, yes, and also our true record of sin and selfishness. This is the judgment that self-talk and positivity alone can't get us out of. We're looking at Matthew 25 today. It comes at the end of Jesus' teaching ministry. It is, in that chapter, the fourth and final teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on staying alert for his return at the end of history. It also contains one of the most sobering and well-known depictions of final judgment, what that day will be like. And it answers a few questions that we might have about judgment. We'll just run through a few of those together. First, who will serve as the judge? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus will be the judge on the last judgment. And maybe this would actually come to you as a surprise. Jesus, who's most well-known around the world, for his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness, and rightly so. But do you know that Jesus actually talked about hell and judgment more than any other person in the Bible? And this passage reminds us about the fullness of who Jesus was and all that he taught. He spoke about judgment, and he spoke about himself as the coming judge. We're told in verse 31, when the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, comes in his glory, he's coming back, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne with a proverbial gavel in his hand. The old commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, Jesus in his first coming was under a dark cloud of obscurity in his birth, his incarnation. His second coming will be in a bright cloud of glory. He will take his seat on his glorious throne as judge and king. Who will serve as judge? It's Jesus. Second question, who will be there on judgment day? Verse 31 says, all the angels with him, all of heaven will be present. And then it also says in verse 32, tell us, verse 32 says, 
All the nations will be gathered before him. Every ethnic group without exclusion. Every human being of all time, living and dead, will be gathered. You can almost imagine just an, an endless ocean of people, one that extends beyond and over the horizon. Like the biggest concert or sports gathering or celebration of a championship that you've ever seen times, well, a million, a billion over the horizon. As I said, and as the creed tells us, even all the dead will be there, resurrected for this moment and gathered in one place. Death itself doesn't let us off the hook. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 5, verse 28, 29, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Every person who ever lived will be present in the court of heaven. And Christ then will proceed to judge every person, Matthew tells us, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And here the author is pointing out a, a common custom that we may be less familiar with, not being shepherds ourselves, but in ancient Palestine, shepherds would every night separate sheep from goats into separate enclosures at night. Uh, the sheep in one pen over here and the goats in another pen over there. Notice Jesus uses the language of separate in talking about judgment. This is actually how the Bible usually depicts moments of judgment. Separations, dividing, discerning, distinguishing good from bad, right from wrong, light from dark. This moment is what C.S. Lewis described as the great divorce, separation. Frederick Bruner, the theologian commentator, calls this moment an awful separation of all peoples. Uh, see, the Bible talks about this moment of judgment. If you could put it in the terms of a household tool or appliance, we often think of judgment as a hammer. The Bible thinks of judgment as a colander or a sieve. Uh, separating out one from another. And as Jesus does this, the sheep from the goat were called to give an account of our lives, every thought, word, desire, and deed. And so another question comes up, well, what will be the criteria, the basis upon which we will be judged? The Bible talks about a lot of things. Lots of ways in which our lives will be evaluated, but this particular passage focuses on one thing in particular that will be examined, that will be decisive as to who will be counted among the sheep and counted among the goats. It's our deeds specifically, it's our compassion towards those the world regards as the least. Let me read it for you. Verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Well, that's what he said to the righteous, the sheep, as he recites all that they had done. And in showing compassion and mercy and kindness to the very least of these, he said, you did it unto me. And on the other side, he says nearly the same thing, but the opposite Verse 42, to those who were counted among as goats. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me, and I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. He, he says in verse 45, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. What was the decisive criteria for the king, the judge, in this moment, in the final judgment? Jesus says, among other things, it will be this, how we treat people around us who lack food, shelter, freedom, love. What's stunning about this is not that Jesus is pointing at profound acts of generosity and sacrifice. He does not, in fact, say, I was sick and you healed me. He did not say, in fact, that I was in prison and you liberated me. It's the little simple deeds of kindness and compassion that Jesus points out. I was sick and you helped me. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. You looked after me. You came to visit me. You fed me. You invited me in. Bruner says this in his commentary. Jesus makes his kingdom accessible not to the great doers in the world, but to all the little doers in the world. Not only does that mean that this is attainable for all of us, it also means we're all without excuse. He's looking at the little things. As Romans 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 6 says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And here Jesus lays out the great criteria. What have you done loving the least? One thing that stands out that's so striking about this passage is the way that Jesus so clearly tells us that he identifies personally with what we might describe as the poor and the vulnerable. In both verse 40 and in verse 45, he says, what you did to them, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. You did to me. What you did not do to them, you did not do to me. Christ is in some special way personally present in the poor and the least and therefore takes special care for them and special offense when we refuse to care for these. A long time ago in the 5th century, there was a, a Christian author in what is now modern-day France, Sulpicius Severus. He wrote about uh, an individual, Saint Martin, who, while growing in his knowledge of, of Christ and still trying to figure out how to follow him, he encountered someone who was uh, coatless in the dead of winter, a cold, bitterly cold day. Uh, person after person passed by this individual, shivering in the night, 
neglecting him, refusing to give what he needs. And so this St. Martin comes along and, and realizes he has a cloak, a coat on his own back. And, and so sort of in a moment of half generosity, at least decides to cut his cloak in half. Uh, he gets a little bit for himself. It was a cold night, and he gives just a little bit of himself to this person in tatters. Puts on half the coat, looks a little silly, but certainly stands out in that cold night as St. Martin goes along his way. That night he goes to sleep, we're told in this story, and he has a vision that he encounters Christ himself, and as he looks up, what does he see? Christ himself wearing half a cloak, the very cloak that he had given to this man. Part of this passage, among other lessons that we're confronted with, it teaches us, I think, to learn to see Jesus in other people. When we care for others made in his image, and certainly among those who have been redeemed in his image, when we do well unto them, we do well unto him. Whatever we do, even unto the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus's, clothing people, feeding, speaking words of encouragement to, laboring for justice on behalf of, giving of our possessions, of our time of our heart, of peers, of neighbors, and of strangers. So then we do it even unto Jesus himself. So intimately does he identify with those who are deeply in need. Now immediately, of course, a person listening to this sounds like, wow, this doesn't exactly square with all that I think I know of what the Bible says about how we are saved by faith in Jesus, not by our works. Isn't that the truth? This seems to say that we're saved by our compassionate deeds. It seems to say that we make it through judgment based upon the good that we do to our neighbor. Well, it certainly does sound like that, doesn't it? And I think we would honor this passage by at least sensing the full significance that Jesus does in fact place on our deeds of compassion or lack thereof. We need to grapple with that, even that sense of it. But I also want you to notice this, that when Jesus the King speaks to those on his right, those who did well, he says in verse 34, come you who are blessed by my Father. That word blessed, there's actually a unique verb form that's being used. We might be able to translate it, you who have been being blessed. There's a, a prior blessing favor that's been shown to these people that have been carrying out these compassionate deeds. Apparently, their hearts, their lives have already been changed. Apparently, there must be some faith alive within them. Jesus also uses 
the language of inheritance. He says, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepare for you since the creation of the world. An inheritance is not earned. An inheritance is given, bequeathed, as it were, through relationships. An inheritance is not a paycheck. Jesus is reminding those on his right that this reward, the kingdom, eternal life, is unearned. You see, these who have served and loved well, compassionately, acceptably to the king, are showing evidence that their hearts have been transformed by faith. They have shown themselves to be recipients of God's favor by faith, and it's out of the wealth of that grace that they are now carrying out these compassionate deeds. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, earlier in this book, taught this, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Jesus in Matthew 25 is saying the sheep and the goat will be judged by their fruit. But the kind of tree that they are is determined by where their roots are planted in the first place. It's what happens within our hearts. It is where our faith is planted in Christ or, in not, in, or not. In other words, what is Jesus teaching as we look at these incredible deeds of compassion that he says we're going to call out and, and have to make an account for one day before Christ and before everyone in judgment Jesus is telling us this, that our daily lives, our lives of compassion or not, tell the true story of our hearts. You see, on the judgment, on the day of judgment, Jesus is not going to give us a doctrine quiz. What do you believe about me? He will read your lives and thereby know precisely what you believe about him. You know why? Because those who have received the life-changing, unfathomable mercy of God become merciful people themselves. Those who receive and are transformed by the mind-stretching, mind-boggling compassion of Jesus become people of compassion themselves. Do you see how this works? Our daily lives tell the true story of our hearts. Jesus isn't going to ask us to recite the Apostles' Creed when we get to that day of judgment. He'll be able to read our lives and tell by the fruit of our lives the true story of our hearts. It's a sobering reality, isn't it? But Jesus himself, all throughout his ministry, emphasized he knows our tendency towards hypocrisy. I know many people today feel like hypocrisy is the very reason why they don't want to follow Jesus or be a member of Christ's church. Well, guess what? Jesus understands your concern with hypocrisy. He shares in it this gap between our lips, our hearts, and our hands. 
Jesus himself directed his apostles to say things like what we find in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. The only thing that counts is faith. Faith expressing itself through love. After all, isn't this all that Christ is talking about here? Love? And so that's the question. That is the ultimate question. Do you have such a faith in Christ that it gives birth to radical patterns of love in your life? Because what's the spiritual and moral power of all these deeds that are commended by the king in this passage? We would conclude with John Calvin that the source of salvation flows from a deeper spring, from a spring of living water, the grace of God given to those who put their trust in Christ. As Bruner says again, divine grace faithfully received leads to human mercy faithfully given. And so then the king carries out their sentence. What is their sentence? The righteous receive eternal life. We're told this in verse 46, but also in verse 34. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's the sheep, the righteous, and the unrighteous will actually were given at least four different words and phrases to depict what happens to them. Verse 41, depart from me. You see, judgment is about a removal from the loving, gracious, blessed presence of God, the source of life. Depart from me. Verse 41, also, you who are cursed, removed from the blessing of God. Verse 41 again, depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's not clear whether this fire is literal or metaphorical. At least what it certainly points to is pain, the torment of being separated from God who is the source of life and joy for every person. And then again in verse 46, they will go away to eternal punishment. Bruner tells us about this passage. In Jesus' vision of the future, there's a great fork in the road where people no longer make decisions. The time for human decisions is over. Here, decisions are made for them, decisions that determine their destinies forever. It's a stunning word for a world that insists an age, a time today that insists so much on the supremacy of individual choice and decision. Do you know that the choices and decisions that we make in this life build up to a great heavenly verdict where decisions that determine our destinies forever will one day be finally rendered? Now, if we just stopped there, I wouldn't be doing my job. (laughs) This low sobering as it should be kind of message as we consider the judgment of God. But I want to finish by asking this question. Where's good news? Where's good news in this lesson on judgment? And we're going to close with this. Three quick things. Where's good news? Number one, the day of judgment means, good news, means that evil 
will not continue in this world forever. That there will be a day when Jesus comes back and says, no more. That's good news. That every source of evil, perpetrator of evil, and let me be humble and saying, even including ourselves, that appears to be going on without account, appears to be perpetrating more wrongs, more hurts, more injustice, more evil, more oppression, more woundedness in this world going on with impunity, it appears to be the case, doesn't it? Jesus will rise up and say, I've seen it all. I know it all. And today we will deal with it all. So many of us are tempted in our deepest moments of pain to ask, maybe even aloud, does God even care about the hurt and harm that has been inflicted upon me? The day of judgment, as sobering as it is, is God's great promise. Yes, I care. Even as Jesus himself promised in Luke chapter two, verse two, uh, 12, verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Romans 2, 6 says, the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus will one day come near. This is both a moment in which God's character will be lifted up. He's not soft on evil, injustice, and oppression. He's not just winking at the worst of atrocities in your life and around the world. He will render proper judgment and take account of everything that's been done. His character is at stake, and your care also is at stake. You can know justice will be served. Evil will not continue forever. That's good news, number one. Number two... What's good news in the lesson that we have before us on the last judgment? It's this. As threatening, as sobering, as this day of judgment appears to be and is, the gospel is this, that Jesus himself, the judge, is judged on the cross in place of anyone who puts their trust in him. In other words, what happened when Jesus died on the cross was the last judgment, the sheep and goats moment for every person that would trust in him was moved from the end of history right into the middle of history so that Jesus experienced all that you ought to experience, one day will experience in that judgment, but he experienced it right there in the cross. As he not only suffered and died physically and emotionally and psychologically, 
but more importantly, as mysteriously, the very wrath of God itself, the just judgment of God itself, indeed hell itself, was poured upon Jesus' soul in a way that eyes could not perceive, but Jesus certainly felt that judgment that we deserve poured out onto him in our place so that he would take judgment and we would receive nothing but forgiveness, kindness, and love from God himself. That's good news. This is the gospel that your verdict has already been handed down and your sentence already served on the cross. And, and wonder of it all, the one who sits in judgment over us, the judge himself, is the one who died for us and was judged in our place. Providence Court Judge Caprio said, I try to place myself in the shoes of the people before me. Jesus literally placed himself in the shoes of the people before him, walking in human flesh, not just making judgments out of compassion, case dismissed, but rather taking the case fully served and sentenced, bearing it on our behalf so that we might be loved, rescued, and brought into what Jesus calls eternal life. Don't you see, this is really the offer of the gospel, that we all, every single one of us, only have two options before us. Either you will be condemned or Jesus is condemned in your place. But all of us have a final judgment day to serve. Again, either at the end of time or in the past, in the middle of time, Jesus on our behalf. But God, the just, cannot let all the sins and evils, all the evidence of selfishness and hypocrisy in every one of our lives go unpunished, go on with a wing. And we're told, well, why doesn't God hurry up and let that day come? Why, why doesn't he hurry and return Jesus and render justice as he says he will? Well, we're told he's delaying that day for a reason. Why? Because he loves you. Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, why did Jesus not come back yesterday? Because he wanted every person to have another chance today to hear about his good news. One more day of patience, of forbearance, one more day, one more opportunity, one more chance to hear about the saving love of Jesus and for you to say, I believe. And so even as we talk about judgment, of course, this becomes an invitation that if you haven't actually received Jesus, if you're only now coming to see his love for you, if you're beginning to understand that what he did was more than just teach good teachings, but actually even in his teachings, he was telling us about his doings, and his doings included his compassionate doings of death, 
being judged in your place, taking your final judgment and taking it upon himself that he might give you life forever in his presence so that you would have not just a token, not just a prize, but the prize is him, his presence, his love, and his people. Will you receive that invitation, maybe even today? And if you already are one who has walked with Jesus and you know him, he wants to give you assurance that you don't need to hear about judgment and quake in your boots with uncertainty and doubt. He does mean this to be sobering. He does mean this to plant in our hearts a good dose of fear and trembling. Maybe today is a wake-up call for some of us about the ways in which Christ is calling to us to a life of compassion and care for those around us because it matters to him. But he does not call us to a fragile sense of your salvation. He wants you to have a trembling confidence by faith. Jesus stood in my place. My judgment is finished. And as sobering and truly unnerving as that sheep and goat's day will be for everyone, believe me, you will ultimately stand there in confidence because you know that Jesus will and already has stood in your place. Final blessing, good news in this lesson on judgment. Not only that the day of judgment means that evil will not continue forever, it means that Jesus himself was judged on the cross on behalf of anyone who puts their trust in him. But thirdly, it means even the sinful contradictions in yourself. Even the war within will one day cease. Jesus will pull the weeds one day, purge sin and selfishness from you. All that you're fighting, all that's just bogging you down, all that's discouraging you, the temptations, the sin, the failures, the need, one day, Jesus will eliminate it all. Every bit of it, you yourself, will be perfectly sanctified, made holy, purified of all wrong and sin, not just in the world, but in you will be no more. So take that as encouragement. That is what you're growing towards. That is what we're leaning in the direction of. Take that as encouragement to keep on persevering. The day of liberation is near. Jesus is coming back. You might be fighting today by faith to believe his promises, by faith to resist selfishness and sin. The battle is today, but one day it will be no more. So keep on going. It's not forever, that fight. Keep on going. Persevere in love, especially love for the vulnerable around you. Keep loving even when no one else is looking. Don't forget God is. And even when you get no response or nothing in return, or even when you get a sour response, an ungrateful response in return. Remember that all of this, Jesus is telling us, will be a surprise. What? We did what? In every direction, 
which means that today we love faithfully, but we will not always know what counts most in the eyes of God. So let's get in a, a, a habit of loving and serving faithfully and not calculating that this is what's going to get me through those gates. No, 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 no. Loving faithfully, freely, habitually, and even learning to see Jesus in the faces of other people, practicing that maybe even in the coming week. As you walk through the metro, as you take the bus, as you're on your sidewalks, as you're in the grocery store, learning to see Jesus in the faces of people, especially those in greatest need, because Jesus said, what you do to them, you have done unto me. It's a sobering thought. It's smelling salts that's meant to give us life, considering this day of judgment, considering Jesus as our judge. He's ascended into heaven, and we're told in the creed, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is sobering, dear friends. And don't you know, that's good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for telling us about this, this topic that we wouldn't naturally uh, be inclined to want to consider, listen to, hear, internalize. Uh, but whatever lessons you have for each of us, I, I pray that you would drill it into our hearts. I pray that the grace and the love of the gospel would shine through most of all, and that, Jesus, we would know you both as judge and as redeemer, uh, both as judge and the lover of our souls. You're all of it, which is why we bow our knees and we give you worship and glory. Come, help us to, by your grace, consider this deeply. And for those who are maybe right on the cusp of putting their trust in you, we pray that your love would knock them over right into your arms and give them the courage and the faith to do so, to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus and to find eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.